eksperimentālās sarunas, aicināt cilvēku domāt, meklēt un dzīvot daudz jākvilnāku un piepildītāku dzīvi. Es esmu Jānis Meļikovs, jezīts un priesteris, un es runāšu ar cilvēkiem par notikumiem, mērķiem, jēgu un visu, kas notiek pa vidu. Mums ir iespējīgi šodien runāt ar augstu vatikāru viesi, svētā pēcslē pārstāv atīvīs, ka po Polna Ričardu Kalagelu. Um, so, welcome to Latvia and thank you for being here, Archbishop. Uh, thank you, Father. It's a great uh, um, pleasure and honor to be here. And just to clarify for people who are going to listen and, and watch this video, I suppose you are a Minister of Foreign Affairs for Vatican. Uh, we always week. say more or less Minister of Foreign Affairs because, mm-hmm. because the Foreign Affairs portfolio in every government throughout the world, is always divided a little bit between the head of government and the head of the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Okay. Uh, because obviously it's so important to the life of, of a country that the head of the government wants to have his say in it. Uh, within the Holy See, the head of government is effectively Cardinal Paralin, the Secretary of State. Okay. So he has mm-hmm. a big input into, uh, if you like, foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so therefore we work together on these things. But the important question for me would be, why does church need uh, this foreign ministry or diplomatic service or this political involvement at all, like engagement with the states and, and international institutions on that type of level? Well, the church as such doesn't need yeah. diplomacy. Uh, but As you know, the history of the Catholic Church has been that the papacy, for many centuries, was invested with temporal power. The Pope was the head of the papal states. He was effectively the king of Rome. Mm -hmm. And so with that, there came certain duties and opportunities which the papacy, the Holy See, accepted and used. Many people trace modern diplomacy back to the Holy See. Many of the traditions and the rituals and the practices begin, indeed, with papal diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it it offered in the past this opportunity to the Holy See and to the papacy. And when, in the 19th century, the risorgimento, or the rebirth of modern Italy led to the loss of the Papal States and then to the whole question of Rome, the Pope being a prisoner of of the Vatican, Papal diplomacy continued. Kings and countries continued to send envoys to the Popes. So it became very clear that the position of the Holy See within the international community was not dependent on territory as such. But it was rather the moral authority that was invested in the papacy and which was recognized by the international community. And so in 1929, when the Roman question is resolved, Italy recognizes that the papacy has right and need of a small territory to grant the pope the necessary independence to pursue his mission the creation of the Vatican City State, a tiny little enclave of of territory. So then that 
diplomatic and political activity continues to this day. But uh, if I may interrupt you, um, okay, historically there was Pope who is like a king in a way and the bishops and cardinals and things like that, but nowadays, isn't it meddling into political affairs uh, by having this type of ministry or service? Uh, uh, done by Vatican, basically. I don't think so, because the role that the papacy is trying to play in international affairs is proper to its role, mm -hmm. proper to its role as church, proper to its role as uh, a, a community of faith sent in mission by Christ. And therefore, certain instruments are legitimate, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we may not say they may not be eternal, but the opportunity to engage with the international community, the opportunity for the Pope to be represented throughout the world through his apostolic nuncios, the, the possibility and opportunity of receiving ambassadors from countries establishes a network of communication, a network of exchanges, which is very favorable to international well-being, to promoting understanding between countries, uh, uh, promoting the values of the gospel, principally, but also those humanitarian values of which, which are derived from the gospel mm -hmm. and which mm -hmm. are also the patrimony of, of the whole of humanity. So, yes, it's, it's, it's an opportunity which the, which the church gladly makes use of. Also, we have to remember that the part of the dip diplomatic activity of the Holy See is also so that communications between local churches throughout the world, mm -hmm. the bishops, the communities, can be fostered and can be constant. A channel of communication between Rome and Riga, between South Africa and Rome, between Australia and Rome, all these different places. So this is, this is something which any human society desires because, exactly, why do countries do it? Countries do it because it's, it's in the interest of their people to do so. It's promoting the common good. The church is going to do exactly the same. So in a way, mediated between different states and promoting the gospel? Uh, yes, well, we, me we mediate between different states when we're invited to do so. Mm -hmm. Obviously, principally, it's a bilateral okay. activity mm -hmm. between the Holy See and a particular country, between a particular, the Holy Father, particular heads of state and heads of government, communities, and then the church level. At that. But obviously there are occasions when two countries or two entities that are in conflict ask the mediation of the Holy See. The, the classic example in the 20th century was the conflict over the Beagle Channel between Argentina and Chile. Mm -hmm. They were very close to conflict, but they realized that they needed the help. They were both countries of Catholic tradition. So they turned to the Holy See and says, look, can you work out the rights and the wrongs of our, of our rival claims? And that was done. Cardinal Samore was, was, the, was the principal sort of agent of that thing. And it, it, was, it was very successful, leading to a treaty between those countries, mm -hmm. avoiding war, and all, all, all the, the negative well, things that would have come out of that. And you mentioned that it's the, the role of diplomacy for Vatican is to promoting common human values. 
Yes, uh, and there are certain priorities along the way. The priority, obviously, of religious freedom, which is yeah. fundamental mm -hmm. to the mission of papal. The promoting of um, human rights in general, the promotion of other, other fundamental values, which, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. are derived from the gospel. Um, why I'm questioning on this is just because there might be some uh, variations of understanding what is human rights and oh, yes, values and things yes. like that, and of always yes. states are actually following to what the church is teaching related to yes, we, life. We, we, life we, we go back to fundamental human rights and fundamental freedoms, as in the declaration of, of the UN uh, mm -hmm. after the Second World War. We have many reservations about the successive generations of human rights or mm -hmm. new rights that are, be, that are being created. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I may move on to another uh, mm. question and you know in last two or three years Latvia was uh, graced if I may say so by a different visit from the Vatican mm. uh, Parolini was here and then last year the Pope uh, came which was great opportunity to see him here and then there were some other cardinals coming to to mm. Latvia or to Baltic states in general to what do we owe the pleasure of such an attention paid to Baltic states and to Latvia in particular? Well, I think, first of all, you go where you're invited. Okay, and, so you were invited the, too. The, yeah, <laughs> the Pope was invited, Cardinal Paralin was invited, Cardinal Turkson came, I'm told, to present the uh, Latvian translation of the compendium of yeah. the social yeah. teaching of the church. So, yes, normally governments or, the, or local churches invite people from Rome um, if it's occasional for, for some commemoration, some special event, an anniversary or centenary or something mm -hmm. like uh, that. Can I ask what was the purpose of your visit or your invitation? <laughs> well, the purpose of my visit was finally to uh, take up the invitations I've had consistently from Estonia and Latvia over the years. I, okay. I've, been, I've been doing this job now for six years and my uh, Latvian and Estonian colleagues have always... Uh, said, come and visit us, and uh, the local church has always been keen to endorse that invitation. Mm -hmm. I'd been a few times to uh, Lithuania when I was at the Council of Europe, and then a couple of years ago for the snow meeting that they arrange mm -hmm. uh, every, every January. And so I thought it was time to redress the balance a little bit and get to know the rest of the, of the Baltic states. So I, I took this as an opportunity. Um, how much do you know about Latvia? Uh, coming here, uh, did you know anything at all? Or a little bit, To yes. what extent? Well, well I suppose... That's I also a good reason to come, is to learn. To learn. And what have you learned in these couple of hours or 24 hours since you yes, were in Latvia? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I've learned a little bit, a bit about uh, Latvia's struggle for independence over the last century or so. Mm. I've learned about the sufferings of the people, both as, at the hands of uh, Nazism mm -hmm. and uh, the mm -hmm. Soviet re regime. And that's, it's good to touch base with that because you, uh, otherwise you, everything is rather speculative, theoretical. Oh, is there's a country out there called Latvia. What are the people like? What's very small a, one. <laughs> yes, but, but, but very significant. And the story of Latvia is important. And it's quite clear that Latvia, its government, its people want to tell that story. And I think that many of us want to hear it and many of us want to help in, in telling the story elsewhere. Yeah, and it's so nice to hear that someone is appreciating this history and trying to kind of... Uh... Well, I, I think it's, it's part of the, 
it's part of the human story. And as we, we were discussing um, during the day, uh, it's true that um, the story of Latvia, like much of, of Eastern Europe, is essentially a story often of tragedy, but it's a story of hope. And one of the difficulties that we're all facing, we who have grown up in after uh, the Second World War, and that is that the memory, memory of things like the Holocaust, memory of the, of the sufferings of people, memories of the conflict, of the, of the sufferings of our armed forces in the wars, mm. is, is weakening as generations pass away. And yet there is a danger that young people almost say, well, you know, it's, these are nice stories for our grandparents, but are they relevant to us today? And they are relevant because they're stories about humanity and about human nature, which are, which are always valid and need to be told. Yeah. Um, now, moving on to another completely different, possibly, mm. topic, addressing some issues uh, related to the Vatican and, and the scandals um, in Vatican, basically. In a couple of last weeks or months, um, not only in a couple of la last weeks and months, there have been uh, going on some scandal related to uh, Pope Francis and uh, Cardinal Sara issuing this book on celibacy, in a way trying to um, propose or, or, or put in some word into defending celibacy, which apparently, according to this cardinal, is being in some way endangered uh, uh, in the church. But it's just an example of what is going on, at least from my perspective here in Latvia, that you constantly hear all these scandals or um, arguments going on and contradicting Pope, and it seems like full-fledged war between conservatives and, uh, and liberals. What I'm asking is basically what's going on in the church or in the Vatican? <laughs> Well, I, I, I think you, you have to distinguish between the church and the Vatican. The Vatican isn't the church, and the church isn't the Vatican. I, I am 66 years of age. Yeah. I was born um, in 1954, so I was born nine years uh, before the opening of the, of the Vatican Council. The Vatican Council ends in 65, and then in the late 60s, I'm already beginning to understand a little bit about the dynamics of the church and the debates in the church following the Second Vatican Council. As for all that time that I have been conscious of these things, people have been debating and discussing the value and the tradition and the discipline of celibacy in the church. So, frankly, I, I, don't, think that, I don't see anything particularly new here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is perhaps is that, the, as you observe, there is this tension in the church between um, conservative groups and liberal groups. And this polarization perhaps has become worse in recent years. Mm. Um, certain events have tended to make uh, conservative groups perhaps a little bit anxious that uh, there is a danger that the discipline of the church universally might be changed. This is not the Holy Father's intention. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you go, if we go back a few months ago to the uh, Synod of Bishops on Amazonia, yeah. and there there was a discussion of whether um, eventually the church might ordain 
men of proven faith and morals to preside over the Eucharist in Amazonia. Now, this is something that was debated to some extent by the bishops. Again, in the, in the synod, there was far from a consensus. Everybody recognizes that ultimately these sort of decisions are the right of, of the Holy Father. But one thing was very clear, that the Holy Father has no intention of changing the discipline of the universal church mm. with regard to celibacy as a, as a condition for ordination to the priesthood in the Latin church, yeah. because we already have in the Oriental church married clergy. Also, the phenomenon of married priests is also not a novelty in the church. If you go back to Germany, the times of the conversion of the, of the, of the Protestant pastors in the time of Pius XII, special provision was made. Anglican priests who've become yeah. Catholics yeah. have been allowed to be, to be conditionally ordained in recent, in recent decades. So these, some of these ideas are not revolutionary. And it is possible that in the future, the Holy Father may make indeed provision for pastoral assistance of these communities in places like Amazonia. I think what causes alarm a bit is that, as we know, there are many parts of the world which are examining the life of their own churches and who may uh, make appeals or may feel that they too need to be taken in, into such consideration. This will, this will have to be judged at the time. But, you know, it's, it's this, um, if you like, possibly groups that have a particular interest are trying to make their voices heard, which is not, not unreasonable. Uh, but uh, I, I personally don't think uh, that this is a situation in which we should be unduly alarmed. I think the, 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 there can be special provision made. The value of celibacy has been, even in this pontificate, on various occasions, reaffirmed and reestablished. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that possibly what we have to say is that there is a great need to demonstrate within the church the lasting value and the fruitfulness of celibacy for the life of the church. And, uh, and also we have to say that, you know, that where, where there are possibilities for married clergy, these things have to be examined in a very realistic way. What is the impact going to be on the community? How is the community going to sustain married clergy with families and make due provision for them? And some of these questions are not always easy to answer either. Mm -hmm. you, you said that uh, we have to recognize the benefit of uh, celibacy. Mm. Uh, and I'm not doubting that, though still I'm questioning in relation to uh, all the candles with the sex abuse, mm. pedophilia, and whatever else is going on there, basically. Yeah, has the church done everything possible to rectify the situation and prevent anything like that happening again? or? How can you comment on these well, issues? I don't think uh, you can ever be complacent. Mm. And you can never say, we've done enough or we've done everything. No, these are, these are very major faults, very major uh, moral uh, uh, tragedies within, within the church, which uh, are being dealt with. 
I think the church, church hierarchy, the Holy Fathers, um, and individual communities, their bishops, the bishops' conferences, are making uh, great efforts mm. to face up to these problems and these difficulties, to legislate for them, to adopt disciplinary practices for them, to focus on the, on the damage that has been done, giving absolute priority and attention to victims of sexual mm. abuse, and also to enrich the life of the clergy in, in terms of formation and their, 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 their prayer and their commitment and the support that, that the clergy need. But no there's, no, there's no reason for us to say we've done everything, we can do no more, and the, 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 the matter is resolved. These are, these are things which the church is working with. We've got a long road ahead of us, and we just have to move forward in faith encourage our people, encourage the clergy who obviously many are, are discouraged yeah. by, by what has happened. Um, and this is, this is something that we, we have to try and work with. But we shouldn't become disheartened. After all, the enduring value of the Church of Christ is not dependent ultimately on the moral perfection of its members or its clergy. The church is ultimately the presence of Christ in the world, and it is Christ who we are trying to show in, as we say, in earthenware vessels, with great fragility at times, but trying to present the richness of Christ, which is the, which is the, which is the saving grace that we're, that we're announcing. Yeah, and, and still it's quite difficult to separate these two entities. Uh, yes. Uh, so we have to deal with that. One level of uh, dealing with is, I suppose, institutional on the level of diplomacy. Uh, have you experienced any uh, difficulties or problems related to these sex issues scandals uh, in your work as a diplomat on the, this level, institutional? Well, you know, that uh, diplomacy is, is, is an inter-institutional activity. Yeah. Now, if the image of that or the reputation or the authority or the credibility of that institution is damaged, then the relationship changes. So yes, there is an impact on the diplomacy of the church. It's true. Um, how, what do you do in order to uh, mend this? Well, I, th I think it's, it's part of the, what we've just been talking about. It's all that, that process of of conversion and purification and of penance and re-establishment of, of the cre credibility that we have to work with. Mm -hmm. you could, there's no magic wand and say suddenly all those problems are resolved and, and the image of the Catholic Church or of its hierarchy or, uh, is, 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 is changed. It's, it's not like that. It's something we have to work with. But, you know, many uh, countries and institutions go through moments of national crisis yeah. where their image and their thing is no different for, for the church. Uh, so we have to work with what we've got. We have to be realistic and I think honest and sincere and, uh, and, and, try, and, and try and move forward. But yes, there, there, is, there, is, there are consequences to these things. Oh, and that's um, international or institutional level, but then as you mentioned, there is a personal level too. 
uh, what would you say or what do you say to people who are affected by these scandals? Is there anything you can actually say them in order to kind of bring them back to church or to faith if they are kind of departing from the church or faith? Because that impacts on a very basic human level a lot of people, not just Catholics, but all over the world, different type of people. And they are questioning faith, church, trust, values, and things like that. What do you say to people uh, who are experiencing challenges on these issues? Well, you reply as you reply to anybody else who asks you a question. You, you give, the, give the answer that, that, that you can from your heart and in, in sincerity. Whether that will satisfy, whether that will repair the damage, I don't know. Uh, in fact, obviously one doubts. Again, I come back to the, to the fact that what is at the very centre of Christianity, it's the very centre of the mystery of the church, is not that we are, in one sense, preaching a way of life or inviting people to become part of a, of a community or an institution which pretends perfection. Rather, we have always said, you know, we are a community of sinners. The difficulty is that we haven't believed that ourselves for a long time. Now it is quite clear, quite obvious to everybody that we are a community of sinners in need of conversion, in need of redemption. And I think probably the, the people we have to convince first of all are ourselves. And then to establish the, the credibility of the church for us and to move forward to, for, the, for the others. I think that uh, people in the church have to can only communicate to others the value of being a Christian, the value of being part of the church, if that does mean something to you personally. It's no use preaching a salvation for others. It's a salvation for you. It's no use saying that I am redeemed by Jesus Christ from my sinfulness uh, if, if I apply it to others and not to myself. So I, I think that what we can do is not so much, in one sense, words to people, explanations, apologies. All of those things have their place at different times. Mm -hmm. But what we have to do is to show in our lives that we apply these fundamental spiritual truths of the gospel and of the Christian way of life and of the interior life to ourselves and that those things are fruitful in us so that they can be fruitful for others mm -hmm. as well. And next question might sound a little strange and out of blue, but uh, I still want to ask is, do you believe in God? Do I believe in God? Yes. <laughs> I most certainly do believe in God. And what this belief in God gives to you personally and in, in your ministry? I believe that fundamentally at the very heart of existence and my existence, there is a being which is is love and who loves me unconditionally despite my unworthiness and my sinfulness. Um, I believe God is my father. I believe that he cares about me. I believe that he is not indifferent to what comes, uh, happens to me. Now sometimes existentially you doubt that. You feel in panic. Yeah. You feel vulnerable. You feel yourself to be in danger. You feel yourself to be unredeemed. But if you cling to that, and that is where the practice of the church, the fact that the church says to us, read your scripture, listen to the gospels, 
say your prayers, go to, go to church, listen to the witness of the saints in the midst of you today, and you will find the way back to faith on a daily basis. Because I think most of us do that. We, we, we have these moments of consolation when, it, we, yes, God is there, God is present. Other moments when we feel he withdraws from us, and very often we're drawn back to him through the mediation of other people, yeah. what I call, what the Holy Father calls the saints next door. And the saints next door are, are fundamental. Uh, and you already, in a way, answered my question how to, how to uh, go back to the church uh, when you feel existentially left uh, by God, by church, by everything, you know. Well, I Going... think you have to cling to the things that you do believe in still. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to advance with little steps like we all do when, when you begin to believe. When I, when I was a teenager, I started reading the scriptures. We, we, we weren't a family where people read the gospel all the time. I found a, a, a copy of uh, an English translation of the gospels, which my father had had in, in his family. And I don't think it had ever been opened. It, had, it was in crystal perfect condition. And I started reading the gospels. And then after I'd read the gospels, I wanted to read the rest of the Bible, so I started reading that. And after I'd read, read the Bible from cover to cover, I've only done it once in my life, but I did it then, I wanted to, I felt a need to pray, and to pray in a more orderly and more constant and a more daily way. And so I started reading the, the prayer of the church, the, what we priests call, yeah. call the breviary. And slowly that nourished me and I re realized that I needed that nourishment. And, and I found it in those things. All of which are, shall we say, the patrimony, the legacy of the church. Without the church, I wouldn't have had those things. Mm -hmm. That is what the community of faith has passed down to us through the centuries. With all its perfection and all, all, its, all, its, uh, all its errors and mistakes, historical and actual and personal, but they were still giving us the scriptures, still giving us daily mass and things like that. And a lot of people would say, that's so old-fashioned and doesn't really suit to my lifestyle and things like that. You are saying that you have to go back to the roots of the church and, and uh, Pope Francis is constantly talking about the same, basically, and mm. challenging, in a way, uh, people who are listening to... Yeah, I, I think you have to see where you're at. You know, you can't... There's no prescription for faith. There is, the fact is that, is that one of the things we have to be aware of, that we're not, we're not looking for God, really. God's looking for us, and he will find you. You know, there's that, so, fa that famous, famous English Catholic poet, Francis Thompson, who wrote a book called The Hound of Heaven. And he, he, he says that God is like a hound pursuing its prey. Well, God is like that. He is a jealous lover who will not give up. And if we then have to grasp at the little things that he sends us, the little interest. You know, people have, have been saved by reading a novel yeah. by a Catholic or a poem written by a Christian or something written by a Jew that has, that has set off that spark of faith in them. Mm. Even if the flame is almost extinguished, then it can be reignited by all sorts of things, and God comes along our way. So in a way, uh, you don't need to do a lot 
just to be open to uh, God, to be approached by God? Is no, I, I, don't think, I don't think it's really rather, you know, like scaling a mountain. <laughs> I think it's more enjoying, enjoying time in the valley. Okay. And uh, Thomas Merton, in his spiritual autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, you know, he, he starts off describing the human condition. And then he, he, again, says that, you know, that he believed that he was sort of ugly and uh, unattractive, unlovable by God. And slowly his life, in, his spiritual life unfolds in a most, in a most surprising way. And he finds that, uh, that, uh, that God reveals his love to him. And God will. Mm-hmm. Often through other people. And in miraculous ways. But the next question would be, what are your highlights of your office, of your priesthood, of your ministry and law lights? Because I suppose being in this office, it, it, it can have a lot of highlights and a lot of downsides to this ministry too. Can yes, you name I, I, something? I don't, don't really identify too many of the highlights of, uh, of my priesthood. Uh, in the last few how, years how that, so? that, that I've had that I've had this job and because uh, of the job no 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 it's just that I think that uh, most of us become priests to be ordinary parish priests that's why I became a priest <laughs> it's just that the church has asked me to do different things along the way and I've done them um, highlights uh, I don't know I I, I, I was um, I was very happy as an assistant priest in a parish when I was very young. I loved working in the hospital with sick people mm. and dying people. Um, I liked preparing young couples for marriage and things like that. Working in the school, local parish school. Mm. Those are the things I think which... And then later on, years later, I uh, did quite a bit of uh, spiritual direction. I studied spirituality before... I went in to study canon law for the diplomacy and things like that. And those things were, were, were very, very satisfying when you help young people and young people yeah. in seminaries find their way forward. Those, those were probably the highlights. Obviously, you know, when you get the opportunity to accompany the Holy Father on his journeys around the world, there are very exciting moments and moments of consolation and moments of uh, encouragement and Sometimes moments when you, you, you get a, there's a glimpse of good old-fashioned vainglory, which that's, that's, that's the way things yeah, are. Yeah. But I think it's when you feel that you are truly just being Christ for other people in some way. Yeah. Sounds like your youth, your initial steps into priesthood and ministry was the best Time and now you are in a, way, in, a, in a way just feeling your duty, doing your best. No, of it no, 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 I, I don't do that because I, I believe that if you're, going to, if you're going to do this sort of job well, you have to see that it's about people, it's mm-hmm. about souls, it's about uh, um, a ministry to people. It's not the ministry that you possibly would choose for yourself. It's not the ministry that you thought you were preparing for, but it is a ministry. And uh, even at the level of politicians and diplomats, mm. you know, they've got souls as well. And they've, they've got spiritual needs. 
and they need encouragement and sometimes correction. <laughs> sometimes. And, we, and so we, we, we try to do all of those things in different ways. But, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about what do you do in order to keep up spiritually with, with whatever you are doing, basically? How do you maintain yourself uh, spiritually, because, and I'm asking this because a lot of people are experiencing the same. They might do a lot of wonderful things in their life, but at some point you experience, okay, it's it's mundane, it's boring, it's whatever is going on. And how to uh, how to maintain this uh, spirit in yourself, and how to go on about your daily life without complaining, without kind of being down too much and things like that. How, what do you do in order to...? Well, I cling. I cling to the things that I know that are, that are good, and prayer is one of them. Mm. I try to say my prayers several times during the day. I celebrate daily Mass, normally with the religious community that helps me where, where I live. Uh, I try to accept invitations which come occasionally from religious communities or ceremony, uh, seminaries to go out. I try to make the best of, of these moments, like these journeys, like we'll have Mass in a few minutes mm. now yeah. with mm. the, the religious of Latvia. These, for me, are, are moments of great encouragement, you know. And I've always liked preaching, so yeah. I, I try to do a bit of that from time to time. Uh, those are the things I cling to, when I find that the, the paperwork is, is sort of dehumanizing me or despiritualizing me. And there's a lot of paperwork, unfortunately. So basically finding the best parts of whatever you have in your life, well, in your job. Taking, taking your... again the opportunities that present themselves. And uh, one more question related to your roots, um, mm. Britain. Yeah. Uh, as we know, Britain has left uh, European Union. Yes. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean, possibly that's not correct uh, or not the right question for you, but still maybe you can... Um, no, well, my personal views are on, on this just matter personal are, <laughs> are, are quite well known and don't need repeating here. Um, I think uh, today uh, I feel a little bit sad uh, about... Uh, the decision that has been um, realized in the mm -hmm. last few hours, that's true. But at the same time, I think that, uh, again, it's one of these situations where you one hopes and one prays that it's going to be work out for everybody concerned, both for the, the Brits who have left and for the Europeans who, who remain. I think that that, that is our, the, shall we say, obligation or the duty of men and women of faith to move forward and say, okay, this is this has gone this way. Maybe it's not what everybody wanted, but we have to try and make it work, mm. and we have to try and make it work for everybody concerned. And that's what I hope and pray will happen. Isn't it that this um, um, Brexit is uh, in a way trend in Europe now, uh, going around? Uh, that Poland is starting to discuss possibility to leave. Uh, Hungary possibly uh, something going on there. What? church can do in regards of this, bringing well, again, unity? I, I think whatever. it's coming back to what we were talking about, the historical memory in Latvia and what happened in the yeah. last century. It's important to remember the origins of the European project, the sufferings of the two world wars for mm. Europe, the need to 
secure peace and prosperity in the post-World War things. That was the very beginning of the European project and then the, the, the coming together of saying, well, we've got, to, we've got to use our resources, the resources of our country to the benefit of everybody. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what we, we, we need to focus on. I think we need to say that everybody has and perhaps a duty to, to be good patriots. You have to be proud of your country. You have to be proud of your tradition and what your country stands for. But you mustn't fall into, I think, the error of saying, of absolutizing any of these things and, and making uh, those things the, the object of thing. You have to remember that there is always the, the duty to pursue the common good of everybody. If you're not pursuing the common good of everybody, ultimately you're not pursuing the good of yourself and of your community as well because only the common good can ultimately serve and benefit us. Thank you, Archbishop. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and being here in Latvia. Pleasure. Thank you. It's a great pleasure.